The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. This Echo Chamber episode is brought to you by the W2O Group, which is making the world a healthier place through marketing and communications. And it's What to Know podcast on digital marketing and communications. So without further, further ado, um, I'd like to invite up onto the stage founder and CEO of Igami Group, Tanisha Jackson-Warner. Um, Tanisha, first of all, thank you so much for um, joining us here today. Um, you are a founder of an agency that you say began as a dream. Yeah. Uh, what was it, 15 years ago? Or 12 so? years ago. 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, and now, of course, is, is, a, is a multi-million dollar, multicultural marketing, that's a tongue twister, powerhouse. <laughs> Um, and I think that idea of starting a, an agency as a dream will resonate with many people in this room because there are, you know, there's a, a lot of agency entrepreneurs here. Um, and it has been quite a journey for Igami, right? Over yeah. 12 years, you go from a dream to, as Paul mentioned earlier, developing the talk, uh, which was you know, celebrated creatively. Um, you became, I think, the first minority-owned firm to win a Cannes Grand Prix, yes. is that correct? And you were the first African-American woman yes. to grace the Cannes Lion stage as a Grand Prix winner. So, with all of that said, that's quite a journey. When you launched Igami as a dream, was this what you had in mind? Actually, um, and I told you this story a little bit, Arun, when you we did. talked. You guys are really gonna get a kick out of this story. Um, really, when Igami was founded, I was truly just following my passion. Um, I originally started my career after college working at IBM Global Services, and I was there for about five years. And I chose my career after college basically based around the amount of money that I can earn. It was all about the earning potential. And probably about year two in my career, I knew I had a problem and that was, I hated going to work. So that's a pretty major problem, right? Um, <laughs> so around about year three or four at IBM, I started to really think about, you know, if I could do anything um, and money wasn't a factor, what would this look like? And I actually drew like this stick image of myself and I wrote all of my passions. And one of my passions was creativity, one was entertainment, one was culture, um, the other was community. And I said to myself, I'm gonna set out on a journey to nurture these passions and see where it leads. And ironically, it actually led me to an opportunity of working with a company called Rush Communications. And Rush was the parent company of Def Jam Music, um, fat fashions, baby fat, fat farm, really on the pulse of hip hop culture and pop culture. Um, when I was working at Rush, I just felt like I had found the epitome of joy. Every day that I went to work, I absolutely loved what I did. Um, however, I had one problem. After working in complete hip hop environments for about three years, I actually started to miss corporate. 
So there was a such thing as a little bit too far out there for me. I'm not going to tell you some of those stories because I want to get in trouble. Um, <laughs> but I started to miss the structure of corporate. So I was just really exploring, is there a connection point between the two? I was introduced to the CEO of Jostens. And Jostens is the leading product provider of US products um, in high schools. Um, and I met the CEO, and the CEO asked me, Arun, should I be paying attention to pop culture? And so I pulled all of this research and said, absolutely, because one out of two students identify with this growing pop culture, hip hop culture movement. And then he asked, well, what should I do to reach this particular audience? And I came up with marketing messages, um, creative. But then I took it a step further. I said, you need to make unique products that would speak to them. He was like, well, how would I go about doing that? And I said, you should do a class ring with Beyonce. He was like, cool, can you do it? And I was like, I think I can. And so I went and I pitched Beyonce on this concept of creating and designing a class ring. She did it. I pitched a couple other artists. And then Beyonce's class ring became the number one selling class ring for about three consecutive years. And so it was during this period that a friend of mine said to me, whoa, Tanisha, you're doing some really amazing work. And he was like, do you know you're an agency? And I kid you not, guys, this is the first time I've ever said this from a stage. I looked at him and I said, what's an agency? I didn't know. I had never been exposed to it. And he was like, trust me, you're one. And so he introduced me to um, an executive that was over at uh, MWWPR. She was a vice president. And he said, just sit down with her and show her your work. And I sat down with her. And she was like, uh, yeah, you're a little bit more than an agency because you're creating products. And we don't exactly also create products. So I say all of that to say, when I started, and was thinking about this as a dream, I can't say I envisioned it as this thriving agency because I didn't even know what that was. Mm -hmm. But what I was sure about is the passion around multicultural audiences, culture and community and creativity and just following that passion led to where it is now. Mm -hmm. So you guys are looking at a girl that said, what's an agency to becoming the first African-American woman to walk the stage at Can Lion. So dreams do come true. <laughs> <laughs> most, de most definitely. Um, now, you launched, I mean, you didn't launch as an agency, but, but fairly soon you become an agency. Absolutely. And you're a min minority-owned agency in an industry that, if we're being honest, has not been the most welcoming always, at least at an institutional level, towards minorities. Um, what kind of challenges did that pose for you, or, or perhaps how did you maybe turn those into opportunities? Well, I think in the beginning, the biggest challenge was how, um, how, how should I position the firm to actually get the firm an opportunity to have a seat at the table with major brands? Um, we knew pretty early on that we wanted to work with Fortune 100 and Fortune 500 brands. And so I think the first thing that we did was being willing to work with other agency partners. And so that introduction to the executive at MWW PR, that led to that executive saying, hey, maybe we can form a strategic partnership with your firm to offer multicultural uh, expertise to our clients. 
And it was really working with strategic partnerships with other agencies that I think for Igami Group, we sort of understood what does it mean to operate as an agency. It was almost like an incubation. But on the flip side, for our agency partners, we were actually opening up more doors within their client base mm -hmm. because they realized that their clients were coming to them saying, hey, the new face of America is fastly becoming multicultural and we need to have an expertise in reaching this audience. Do you have that expertise? Mm -hmm. And our firm and those strategic partnership gave those partners that expertise. So um, one challenge was just how do we get a seat at the table? And we really were able to do that by way of strategic partnerships. Um, secondly, eventually corporate brands started to come to us direct, whether it was Verizon Wireless, um, significant work up under the P&G umbrella. And the challenge there was really, um, as a small business, being able to compete at a global level. So that looks like making sure we were able to uh, meet the, the payment terms, you know, the payment terms of a global firm and a small business owner, for many of our clients, we were signing up as the same terms, but a small business cash flow and a global firm's cash flow looks very different. So that was a huge challenge that we had to um, overcome. And then the third thing with our clients, many of them really realized that they needed this expertise, but we, and I'm sure as many of you all as independent agencies, we definitely have gone through cycles where it's about efficiency of scales and our clients will make the decision to consolidate. Um, and as those decisions to consolidate were being made, then our particular contracts were at risk. And so we had to really determine how do we navigate those turbulent times to position ourselves as a firm that is of value that you really need to think about in an out-of-the-box way that perhaps you're not getting this particular expertise when you go into some of the um, consolidated models. Mm. Which is interesting because obviously you, you bring that, you bring multicultural expertise and yet, I mean, I'm not always a huge fan of the, the phrase multicultural marketing because it's just marketing. Yes. Yeah. You know, the, the idea that we, we segment based on on, um, on you know, demographics and culture um, creates an opportunity for you. But at the same time, is there a risk around uh, client-side budgets um, when it comes to multicultural marketing? Because does that always get the same attention and care on the client side that it should do? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely would say our firm, we have um, learned how to become extremely resourceful um, our budgets oftentimes do not look like that of general market. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really about continuing to educate the industry to that big point that you just made. So um, I think there needs to be somewhat of a mindset shift versus looking at marketing and multicultural marketing as either or. And multicultural marketing is this niche that can be bolstered on at the end versus general market is multicultural um, marketing. And we really don't even need the two words. When you think general market, you should be thinking about a diverse America and how do I create campaigns that are reflective of many culture, many cultures and, and diversity, whether that's race, gender. Um, so 
it's really still working with many clients to have a fundamental mindset shift. And the best way to do that is through the numbers. Mm -hmm. um, so we're constantly reinforcing what the buying power of multicultural audiences look like. Um, there are many segments, whether it's um, baby food, um, uh, beauty, beauty is one for sure, where multicultural audiences are the lead, lead purchasers in that category. Mm -hmm. So if you were to not market to that, of course you're gonna experience a decline because they're making up majority of the spend in that particular category. Mm -hmm. So as much as possible, we try to drive it back. This isn't a nice to have, this isn't you know, um, your, your corporate social responsibility work, this is good business. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's very important for us to remind our clients of that through the numbers. And what's your advice perhaps for the agencies in this room who, you know, maybe are, are trying to develop better multicultural marketing practices, hopefully not at your expense, but, you know, are also looking at that as a growth area. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we've seen many agencies mm -hmm. launch practices there. And um, what's your advice in terms of what you see uh, them doing right and, and, and doing wrong as well? Well, I think um, when you think about diversity and becoming more diverse from the inside out, I think you got to look at it almost from a holistic standpoint. So of course, it's looking internally at your employee makeup and being very intentional. As you said, hiring goes to say, hey, I want to make sure that our inside starts to be reflective of what um, America looks like. And so that means being very intentional to make sure perhaps that you have women in C-suite positions. Um, there's a stat that I pull here that basically sort of highlighted the PR industry, although it's predominantly led by women, there's still a significant gap of women in C-suite positions. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it's looking at that and making sure that your C-suite positions um, are also reflective of, of women in some of those seats. And then also taking that a step further as you look at ethnicity, um, how many African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians um, do you have on your roster? And it may mean that you have to recruit in new places um, and not go to some of the same places. And so of course there's the intentional effort in how you bring talent in, but something that I've also found, even with working with some of our clients, it's not just about you know, checking the list off, we're moving the needle in our hiring practices, but once you hire this talent, what are you doing to make sure that the talent actually feels like your organization is a place where they belong? Mm -hmm. And if you're not doing work internally to make sure that it feels like a place where they belong, then even with that, you'll experience attrition. Um, there are very small things that you can do on that belonging, whether it's um, you know a mentor uh, dynamic, making sure that that person has another mentor that looks like them, um, making sure that they understand um, externally from a community standpoint, are there community organizations that they can get involved with that actually align 
to their passions and things that really speak to their culture. And then the things that you're doing within your company, are you acknowledging things that actually celebrate a diversity of culture internally? All of those things matter. Um, and then last but not least, where I started with you, Arun, in saying we started with strategic partnerships, I think agencies can also really keep an open mind around partnerships. So, um, firms like myself and, and many others are open to agency collaborations. And I know we all get in front of our clients and say, we're good agency partners, but <laughs> really meaning that um, and being open to inviting diversity of thought and collaborations inside by way of strategic partnerships with minority-owned firms, um, that's another vehicle of what diversity could look like. Mm, some excellent advice there, I would say. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, I mean, the, the work that Igami has produced, in particular the talk, um, is very socially conscious. Uh, and that's, as you know, also very fashionable these days. And, and what, we're, what we're often seeing now is many brands uh, and, and occasionally their agencies as well, you know, jumping onto this, you know, maybe a, a cause bandwagon. Mm -hmm. um, Again, what would be your advice in terms of brands that are getting it right and those that are getting it wrong? Well, there definitely are lots of lessons with the work that we did on the talk. And I'll say this, because I think we talk about the talk often thinking everybody knows about it. But by show of hands, are you all familiar with the talk? Just by show of hands. If not, I'll give you the quick download. Yeah. OK, so here's what the talk is. Uh, the talk is a campaign that uh, Procter & Gamble released about a year and a half to two years ago. And basically, it shined a light on a unique talk that happens within the homes of African Americans. So most of the time, if you were to hear me say, it's time for me to have the talk with my daughter or son, you think it's time to talk about what? I'm going to wake you guys up, because I know it's the end of the day. If I say it's time to talk about the talk, what are you thinking about? Sex, right? <laughs> so sex and birds and bees. Um, however, when you say that within the home of African American, we found by way of research, it means something completely different. It means it's time for you to have a talk with your child to prepare them for the first time that they encounter racial bias. Um, and so this was a bit of an eye-opener to many people in, in our focus group. And so the idea behind this campaign was to shine a light that the talk is actually happen, happening and what is the talk in an effort to, have to stop the talk. So it was sort of we're shining the light on the talk so that we all can talk about it because it's really, really insane that we're still having to have this talk. And perhaps if we all talk about it, we can end it. So um, it was a part of PNG's effort to make a step towards creating a world where racial bias did not exist. And we know that was a very big, big um, social issue to take on. But I will say one of the first things that I believe PNG did right in this campaign is this was not PNG's first time entering in a conversation about bias. So sure, at this particular time in history, 
um, it, we were experiencing in this country probably an all-time high of racial incidents. And you guys remember this was uh, the, the beginning of 2017. There were many times I would watch the news and I would see riots and um, all you know different types of hate crimes happening. And I think we were all kind of pitching ourselves saying, is this really happening now? And so although all of this happened during this time and it looked like the opportunity opportune time for PNG to jump in the conversation. PNG was doing work against bias way before this occurred. So um, with the campaign Love Over Bias, where it talked about what if the world could, could see their children through the eyes of a mother. There was the Tide campaign um, around labels and looking beyond labels. And so PNG actually had a track record in taking a stand against bias. And this just ended up being sort of an evolution of that. So I say this to say, rather than jumping into a cause or a social issue because it's the new hot thing, mm -hmm. we encourage brands to explore what's really true and authentic for you. Um, what connects to your brand purpose? What connects to your brand story? You know, what is it that you have a right to do and you really have a genuine interest in doing? And we encourage our clients to do the work first before going really, really big. And so when the talk came out, it was huge. Um, it went viral. But PNG, again, the My Black is Beautiful campaign, at the time the talk came out, I think the My Black is Beautiful campaign was about 10 years old. And the My Black is Beautiful campaign was created because African-American women were saying they did not see enough positive images in mainstream media that reflected their unique beauty. So again, that was a receipt that PNG could pull out to say, hey, this isn't new for us. You know, we actually started a community to support black women in seeing more positive images um, reflective of their beauty. Oh yeah, this isn't new for us. We've supported this organization and that organization. So I say all of this to say they actually had a track record. And that's something very important in how brands should enter into causes so that it doesn't appear to be opportunistic or a fad. But make sure it's something that you've already put a stake in the ground, you care about, or you've done some groundwork. Um, and if it's something that you're just starting to care about, it's okay to start grassroots first before you go really big. Um, because consumers, they can kind of sniff, sniff out that inauthenticity. And if they feel that, hey, this is an issue that's hot right now, you're coming out of you know, nowhere, I didn't even know you cared about this, mm -hmm. um, then you're at risk to actually get challenged by that. So we always encourage brands to make sure that it's something really authentic for them. And then the second thing is know your role in the conversation. So when PNG shone the light on the talk, by no means did we position them as the authority on you know, racial, um, racial bias or the authority. They were more of the facilitators of a conversation. And they were very clear that they were not entering this conversation trying to be an authority trying to drive the conversation versus facilitators. Um, that was a very big distinction mm -hmm. that I think it really was a part of why it resonated so true with the community. The third thing that they did really well is they were willing to bring the outside in 
to test their thinking along the way. And so by the time that campaign was out externally, PNG actually invited in a lot of activists from the community. So um, I'm not sure if you all know Miss Angela Rye on CNN. Do you guys know Angela Rye? She's very opinionated. If you knew Angela, I would see hands going up. Um, so Angela Rye, Van Jones, um, there's a popular um, blogger named Lovey Ajay. Um, we brought in so many voices, the United Negro College Fund. We brought in a lot of community voices to the table to say, take a look at this piece and help us along the way. And I think that's something also that they did very well by saying we're not the experts, but we care enough that we want to know how is it impacting your community and we want to be a part of shining a light on this injustice. Mm. And what does it look like when a brand gets this kind of thing wrong? I mean, I don't know if there's any particular examples you want to bring up, but what, what, what does it look like? Well, I think there have been a few um, over the past year or two. Um, in media that kind of took over the conversation. So I'm sure you all remember probably a year and a half ago with H&M, um, there was a young boy in a sweater and um, the sweater had the word monkey on it. And again, do I think someone in a room said, hey, let us you know, seek to offend a particular segment in the world? I don't think that was the intention, but I think it shines a light on the lack of mm -hmm. diversity and the lack of um, diversity of thought in the room or at some point along the way to check those pieces of work. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a big one that you know sparked a lot um, of conversation in social media. Um, another one, maybe a few months back, um, is with um, the brand Gucci. And I'm not sure if you all remember, there was a sweater that, um, it, it, it was a sweater that actually went up to about here. And again, it basically was the face of, uh, of a monkey almost, I think it was, a, a black face. And so understanding the history and the reference of, you know, how, what, how did that offend others? Um, and once again, do I think that was the intention? No, but I, I do think it speaks to lack of diversity in the right rooms um, along the cycle. Mm -hmm. So those are two. Mm. Thank you. How, do you. how does a PNG, let's say as an example, get to a point where it is this enlightened, or at least it's trying to be this enlightened about, for example, racial issues? Um, is it just a case of, I mean, obviously they have good advice from their agencies, but how do they, I mean, from what you've observed, how do they get to that point internally? I think they give their internal employees voices. Um, and so if you look inside of your organizations and maybe pose the question, I always like to pose this question because behind this question, you can find tension that needs to be addressed. Um, but pose the question to your employees, what pains you? Like what keeps you up at night? What, um, what bothers you? If you pose that question to your employees, you will start to probably see a reflection of different pain points that are true in America. Um, 
you know, whether that's a mom that, you know, feels that the, the, the workplace is not necessarily conducive or inviting for a mom or, I mean, if, if you just listen, so many different things come up. Mm -hmm. um, when we pose that question internally within our agency, we have employees with so many different types of pain points and can we attack them all? No, but it keeps us so close mm -hmm. to what's happening in the world and how can we play a role in, um, in tackling certain injustices. So um, we have, again, young black girls within our company that what pains them is the thought of their daughters or the thought of their sisters having to, um, this actually was one of the big things for the talk, but the moment that that daughter has to hear, you're pretty for a black girl. Mm -hmm. And that's a thing as well. It's, it's a compliment that some young black girls have to hear that's not really a compliment. You're pretty, but you're pretty for a black girl. Um, and again, we have uh, LGBTQ um, strategic partners and team members that they want to see equal rights in the world. Um, they want to see us push the limits there. And so just going internally and asking your employees, you know, what pains you, what keeps you up at night, it will guide you to these, these areas that need to be adjusted. And oftentimes, if your firm is bold enough to attack it, um, you also may have a client that's bold enough to attack it. And I think for us, we just had the right time where our employees were, honestly, we were pissed. <laughs> I mean, we were, I mean, when we got that brief, it just so happened the briefs it kind of was open to say, be provocative, push us. You know, how do we connect with this segment? What matters to them? What bothers them? Mm -hmm. And you had um, a group of individuals that had a lot of tension and pain that said, are you sure we can be provocative? You sure we can push you? And the client said, let's go there. Mm -hmm. And together we tackled something in the world um, that we're very proud of. Mm -hmm. As you should be. Do you find that asking that question of your, of your teams, um, are they pushing you more these days? Because we hear so much about how younger people are, are expecting more from the places where they work, uh, from the brands um, that they buy from. Do you find that that kind of dynamic is in play? Absolutely. I, I know that was one of your questions. Um, I'm finding the younger talent that we're attracting, I think they're coming to our firm because they want to be a part of something bigger and greater. And it's beyond um, the job. It's beyond the paycheck. They want to make sure that it's marketing that's actually making a difference in community, marketing with meaning, um, being able to connect their role in the business with some type of impact in the world by way of the accounts they get to work on, um, it's a real attraction point to talent. So yes, we're seeing that, that they're expecting more of us as employers. They're expecting more of the brands that they're purchasing from. Um, and they also push us. We just did an office remodel and one of the employees wrote and was like, hey, you can't buy products from this place. We don't want any products from this place because of this, 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 and this. And they had actually done the research from one of the vendors that we were gonna purchase from mm -hmm. and told us reasons why we shouldn't purchase from that vendor. 
And so, you know, again, we're finding that the, the employee, employees are expecting more of the employers. Mm -hmm. And as you've grown, um, I, think I'd be, I think people in the room would be quite interested to hear perhaps of some of the, the, the learnings that you have accumulated along the way. What's one, perhaps one big lesson that you can take from you know, the 12 years mm -hmm. you've been uh, running Igami? I would say sort of twofold. Um, it's know what you know and know what you don't know. And if you really know those two things well, you can navigate accordingly. And so it took a while for our firm to become comfortable in saying, you know what, here's what we know that we know. We know multicultural audiences and we know purpose-inspired marketing. So when it comes to multicultural and purpose and marrying those two together, we instinctively knew we have the right to be a leader in that space. And once we knew that, it actually took us to the top. Mm -hmm. um, that knowing, sometimes I steered away from the knowing, and I, I'll call the knowing even our firm's purpose. So once I knew those were our sweet spots, um, that was really a criteria for a checklist of who we work with and why we work with them, right? And I can remember I was working on a spirits account and they were basically, um, at first when we were working with the spirits account, we were doing parties across the nation. But imagine this sort of parties with the purpose. We had uh, arts community partner there. We had uh, music artists that would perform. Um, a percentage of the proceeds went back to certain communities. And of course, we were selling product as well. Mm -hmm. As long as that were happ ha was happening, I felt like we were in the sweet spot. Well, a new CMO came in and said, hey, like all of this, but all of this purpose stuff, we need to scratch it. I just want hot parties. And I knew in the inside at that point, uh-oh, this isn't going to be right for us anymore because now it's sort of changing the formula of what we do. But again, as a small business owner and you have to earn money, I decided to keep doing that, although it wasn't our sweet spot. And literally, um, I was working at a party at All Star and one of these big installations that our agency had installed actually came down. And one of the pieces hit me in the head. And so I tell this joke of I had to get hit in the head to say, oh, I get it now. I sh we shouldn't be doing this work. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so the know what you know and sticking to what your core purpose is, is a big lesson. And then knowing what you don't know. Um, so as creatives, as our team grew, we were extremely creative, but a, a weak spot um, from a financial standpoint, I didn't understand the financial back end. And so we were taking on more Fortune 100 accounts. And again, we were under payment terms that larger firms were under. But I didn't really realize the impact of, of those terms to a small business, not until I got the firm in trouble. Um, and thankfully, I then realized what I didn't know and I recruited a strong financial team to support the growth. Mm -hmm. And so the lesson, if I could talk to myself 12 years ago, it would be trust your gut, know what you know, it's gonna take you to places that you can't imagine, 
Get very clear on the things that are your weak spots and that you don't know, and then find someone who knows that and fill it really quickly. Mm -hmm. And you're still independent. You've not, you have no, do you have a desire for external investment? You know, it's, it's something that many firms, you know, will take on in, in one form or another. It'll help them perhaps, and, and sometimes it doesn't always help them, but how, how have you approached that particular challenge? Well, at this point, we're still 100% um, independent. Um, we have started to take on business advisors over the last three years, and we are a, right now at the stage for the first time ever opening ourselves up to have discussion with investors. Mm -hmm. And the reasoning behind that is, to date, we have grown organically, um, really by way of bootstrapping. And there's a lot of benefits to that. There's passion, there's creativity. You can call your own shots. Um, however, there are visions that are now greater. Um, there, the visions to take on more business, grow new technologies in the business, we're at a point we realize in order to achieve some of the larger visions, we believe that we're at the point it's time to take investment dollars. Okay. Well, there are probably some people in this room that, that you can Come talk to. Come talk to us. About that. <laughs> um, we've got about five, at least five minutes, so I just wanted to check, first of all, if we have um, any questions from the floor. Uh, and we have microphones, I think, somewhere. It is really hard to see anything. There has to be at least one question out there. Oh, that's better. No questions, nope. are you sure? Okay. There we go. Um, you're US based, how do you view this internationally? And do you think you could move it international or do you need that particular perspective within countries? Um, absolutely, we do think this conversation is a global conversation. And I'll tell you um, a moment that really um, brought that home for, for, for me. Um, Mark and I, we were, and Mark is P&G's uh, chief marketing officer, we were speaking at Cannes in last year, not this year. And um, we were doing a lot of presentations on the talk because at this point it was up for a lot of different awards and there was a line that was waiting for us and there were um, different individuals from various countries, but in particular, this one girl, that this one woman that's standing out was a young lady that lived in London. And she was bawling when she came up to us saying, thank you for the work. This was the first time that a piece of work articulated our feelings, my feelings, what we're up against. And Mark and I looked at each other and it was really like, whoa because what we thought is that we had created a piece that was reflective of what was happening in America. However, that piece resonated well beyond our country, um, but it, it resonated globally, and in particular, this young lady was from London. So yes, I, I do think um, that these conversations um, have an opportunity to span beyond um, America, and then when you take a look at multicultural audiences and our ability to set trends, um, many of the trends that these audiences set here, we're setting global trends. And so also taking a look 
at um, how these global trends impact the world. Um, years ago, I was um, in Shanghai. I think it was Shanghai. I was in Shanghai, and I went to a club. This was years ago. Don't judge me. Um, and, I, <laughs> and I went to a club, and I called myself going out partying. And for years, when I worked um, at Rush Communication, the parent company of Def Jam, I used to read the insights of Package Facts that would talk about pop culture and hip hop's appeal globally. And although I knew the stats from an insights perspective, it wasn't until I was in this club and a Jay-Z song came on and everybody in the club knew every single word. And not only did they know every word, but they were doing like our dances as well that we do in videos here. And I was like, oh my goodness. Like we really do set trends that drive the world. Um, so to answer your question, yes, I think the, the multicultural work and the multicultural segments and the understanding of those segments here um, really have an opportunity to look at the business impact across the world. Mm. Any more questions? Yep, got one at the front. Hi, um, my name is Sophia Agassi. Um, I'm a sophomore at American University, um, majoring in public relations. And I was just wondering what advice you had um, for a young woman in the business and like how to succeed in um, other aspects of the PR world. Yes, and so are you in, you said you're in college now? Yeah, I'm running the social media here. So All right. I figured I'd ask. I would say the first thing is, and I know this sounds cliche, right? But really, really understanding that the limits are limitless. And so seeking out opportunities, um, being very clear what you're passionate about, and even if you don't know, being willing to explore and seeking out different opportunities um, would be one thing. And then network, network, network. Um, I, I do know in the world of social media, um, it's easy to connect to a lot of people, but don't underestimate the value that real people do business with real people. So um, yes, being connected in the digital um, sphere, but also connecting with people um, would be something very important that I would say to your generation, <laughs> because sometimes I get a lot of um, inboxes, whether it's on Instagram or, or LinkedIn, but there is nothing like the human impact of meeting someone and connecting with them. So take as many meetings as you can in person. Um, and those will be the, the first ones that I would tell you. I think there was another yep. question here. Well, yes. Now they're flying in. Hi, I work for C plus C and we have a multicultural marketing team in-house. And I was wondering, I have two part questions. Um, if you could expand a little bit more on how you cultivate that culture of belonging to make sure that you have teams that stick with you for a really long time that are really strong, and also supporting those teams with clients who may know that they need to really incorporate multicultural marketing into their campaigns, but don't know how it works or how it should work, and that it should be properly budgeted, and that there is a process that you, you tie this in early. It's not a last minute add-on. I don't know if you could talk to those two points. Well, I think with fostering the culture of belonging, um, 
for us, we are always listening to the interest of our employees. And then we actually are trying to bring those interests um, to work in some form of fashion. Um, we have a segment called What Brings You Joy? And that is um, a weekly session where we will actually allow employees to tell us what brings them joy. And they can tell us what brings them joy at work or outside of work. That allows us to sort of know them beyond the walls of work. We then allow them to bring a piece of what brings them joy into the workplace, whether that is um, you know, a certain recipe or um, a certain course that all of us will go do as a team. Um, we've worked out together as a team. We've danced together as a team. Um, and all of those things kind of stemmed from us desiring to understand what brings the employees joy in and out of work. Um, and then as we hear these passions, we try to push ourselves to think about, okay, well, what can we do? So there was, a, at one point, there was a time when um, many of our team members were like really, really big Beyonce fans. Um, and we made these shirts called Bagency. Like we weren't an agency, but we were a Bagency. <laughs> and <laughs> we rented these big buses and we actually went to the Beyonce concert um, like danced and partied together. Well, Beyonce actually saw us on social media. And then there was this moment where she did a retweet and said something like, now this is a cool company. Well, that just went down in history. We all were screaming from my, like my, starting with me, I almost fell out, but that was something that was very memorable. Um, so those type of things, I think, foster an environment that, supports our employees in having a place where they feel they belong. Um, I'll tell you this, there has been times where we've gotten it right, and then there also have been times where, as the owner, I'm disappointed because I want people to stay longer. Um, and it, as you all may know, when you start from a small business, it's very, very much so um, like family. It's, it's a family-oriented environment. But as we've scaled, as we've um, brought in um, industry experience in other ways, one of the things that was very painful for me in growing was when my original crew started to leave. And what I started to hear was, hey, all of this growing is disrupting the magic. Like we had something good going on here. And now you're talking about industry experience. And now you're talking about hiring you know, um, more people with industry experience. And as that thinking would come in, I found that some of our employees would say, we don't feel like we're good enough anymore. We don't feel um, that our expertise is cutting it. And so I feel that we've gotten some things right. But as I look back, I think, as, as an owner, we've probably gotten some things wrong. Um, there was a lot in that foundational of magic that as we grow, I think understanding the secret sauce of how do you grow, you bring in the industry thinking, but you don't disrupt the, the magic. I, if I had that formula, you know, I think the whole part of entrepreneurship, I say you jump out the, you jump off a building, you figure out how to build the plane on the way down. So I'm figuring out how to build the plane <laughs> right now on the way down. I wish I knew that formula before because I think if I did, there definitely probably are some 
many employees that would still be with us that are to me are like my family. Um, and then another part that I've come to realize is the younger generation, they will come and they work, but you also have to be giving in the standpoint of as long as my firm is here and I'm serving you and you're growing, then your time here is right. But if there is a point where you feel that you've reached the height or you feel that you need a change or you feel that your growth is beyond these walls, a part of my maturity and growth is being able to let our team members know that when it's that time, it's okay to leave home. Um, and I think that openness now, I've been able to allow some of our original employees to go out and spread their wings and they're doing amazing things like running Tribeca Film Festival Digital. And I mean, some of the young girls that started with us, they are true boss ladies now. Um, and so to see them go out, I had to learn that was okay. And then it's leaving room for new thinkers to come to the table. And then to answer your question about how do you work with those employees to get the clients to understand, it depends on the level of the employee. I think it's unfair for a more junior employee to be in a room with the senior executive and they feel that it's on them to convince that executive why multicultural marketing. So we're very careful to make sure that um, if a senior team member is going to be in a room or if it's a significant, um, uh, if we're at a significant point where we know we're having to shift minds and perception and we're selling, we support that junior employee with a more senior principal um, that's more skilled in basically, you know, showcasing why it's a business imperative versus a nice to have. But we try to not put that on junior employees right out the gate because it's a little bit unfair to them until they understand how to um, sell and pitch at that level. But the easy bit is you need Beyonce to endorse your agency. <laughs> Everybody go get Bagency shirts and then you're cool. <laughs> La ladies and gentlemen, can you please join me uh, in thanking Tanisha Jackson Warner. Thank you, Arun. Thank you. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. This Echo Chamber episode is brought to you by the W2O Group, which is making the world a healthier place through marketing and communications. And it's What to Know podcast on digital marketing and communications.